0: Preferred Shares is a podcast started by three guys interested in business, history, and business history. We follow our interests and go down the rabbit holes of current and bygone topics. We'll talk about individual companies, product wars, famous founders, forgotten failures, and anything else that strikes our fancy. To find our episodes and show notes, please visit our website at preferredsharespodcast.com. The hosts for the podcast are Devin Lasar, Douglas Ott, and Lawrence Hamtel. Devin is a private investor with a background in design and brand development and is the author of The Invariant Newsletter. Douglas is a founder and chief investment officer at Anvari Associates, a registered investment advisor. Lawrence is a co-founder and principal at Fortune Financial Advisors, also a registered advisor. All opinions expressed by the podcast hosts and guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of their respective employers. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Anvari and Fortune Financial may have positions in any of the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello,
1: welcome to episode two of the Preferred Shares podcast. My name is Devin Lassar. I'm with my co hosts Douglas Ott and Lawrence Hamtel, and we have quite the story for you today. It touches on the Nifty 50, a group of publicly traded companies in the 60s and 70s that showed steady high rates of growth. Investors became obsessed, convincing themselves these stocks only had one decision, buy them no matter how high the price and hold forever. This included household names like Walmart, Johnson and Johnson, Disney, and McDonald's. Investors pushed the prices of these stocks into the stratosphere before it all came crashing down. It's a cautionary tale that you might already be familiar with. But what you are unlikely to be familiar with is our true focus today, which is a company that was a constituent of the Nifty 50 that receives little mention anywhere else. It's a company born around the Great Depression, almost out of necessity. Today is part one of a two-part series, part American dream, Part Cutthroat Capitalism, This is the Story of Simplicity Pattern. Our co-host, Douglas Ott, has done a lot of research on this name, and he's excited to walk us through
0: it. Doug? Hey, Devin. Thanks for that intro. And the way I found Simplicity Pattern was, for some reason, I was looking through all the constituents of the Nifty Fifty for like the fourth or fifth time in my life. And simplicity, for whatever reason, stood out just simply because I did not know what it did you know the history of this company and i start pulling some strings and find some historical books and texts and discover this truly interesting company and an even more fascinating history that went along with it and to get back to the nifty 50 here here are some of the handful of reasons why it eventually made it into that list number one it sells an essential product that is a small part of the customer's total cost two They sold a product that helped their customers save money, so it had some recession resistance to the company. It eventually became the dominant company in its industry with a 50% market share. It required little capital expenditures or research and development. It eventually had operating margins in the mid-20s and upper and almost touched 30% operating margins at its height. Revenues and profits grew steadily for decades and decades. It had no debt, lots of cash. And it survived and even thrived during the Great Depression, while its largest and oldest competitor went bankrupt. So that got me more and more interested, and hopefully our listeners are interested in learning more about Simplicity Pattern. So what what the
2: company does? Lawrence, did you have to <laughs> about to say something? What I was just going to, what I was going to say that you know one one thing that sticks out to me about the Nifty Fifty is that oftentimes with bubbles, you have a lot of companies that are new and they represent a new technology. But for many of the Nifty Fifty constituents, and they include co- older companies like Bristol Myers, Procter & Gamble, Philip Morris, the, the reason why a lot of those traded at sort of stratospheric heights was because people thought that they had this new avenue of growth, whether it was uh, more global consumers versus just U.S. consumers. And so to some extent, the bubble Surrounded these companies reinventing themselves, which as we'll find out is also the story of simplicity pattern. It's an older company that sort of took on a new sort of reputation in the mind of investors.
0: All right, Simplicity Pattern, they were a manufacturer of paper dress patterns for women and children and for our younger listeners. This was a time when women chose or had to make their own clothing. And to do that, they had to have, uh, in addition to a sewing machine and cloth, they needed paper patterns. And this is what Simplicity Pattern made. And for many decades, it was better to make your own clothing. It was much cheaper and often much higher quality relative to store-bought dresses or ready-made dresses. The founding of the company starts with the immigration of the founder of the company, Joseph Shapiro. He was born in Russia in 1888 and immigrated to this country in 1914 with his family. And although he was educated as a chemist, Joseph could only find work as a day laborer and a mechanic until he got a job as an ad salesman for a small fashion trade magazine. And it's here that he saw in 1927 the $1 price on a Paper dress pattern, which came into the office, and he thought to himself, "The price should be much lower for basically what is just a piece of tissue paper." And he said to himself, "Why should an envelope and a piece of tissue paper cost a dollar? They shouldn't cost more than ten cents." And with with that idea, he then rented a small loft and went to work with his son cutting out paper dress patterns, and they. Borrowed and cribbed their designs from department store windows, movies, and dress companies.
2: This is kind of like, like, excuse me. It's kind of like Bezos saying that your margin is my opportunity, right? So yeah,
0: exactly. I mean, you can think of lots of other different examples of uh, of companies choosing to offer a product much cheaper than their competitors, and we'll we'll soon find out that this is exactly how they got their fifty percent market share eventually, even against much larger competitors. So. They started pricing their patterns at about $0.10 cents a pattern, but they soon figured out that was too cheap, <laughs> and no one would believe they could be any good at that price, so they raised it up to $0.15, cents. and to quote the founder, Joseph, again, they began selling like hotcakes when most other paper dress patterns were selling for $0.50 cents and uh, $2 at the high end. So. The way they could make them so cheaply and sell them so cheaply is that they stayed away from the high fashion designs, and they just consciously chose to design patterns that were easier to make. And most important, one of the innovations in paper dress patterns, they printed the cutting lines and the instructions, both in English and Spanish, on each piece of the paper pattern, and in contrast to the traditional method, which was... Apparently you had to identify pattern sections through, you know, these series of punched holes, which is seems kind of difficult and, and time consuming to follow that way. So they they treated their customers right and offered them just amazing value. And this is like you said, with Amazon, it, treating the customer right, offering great value is a great way to gain market share in, in the eyes of the customer and, and, and their business.
2: I was like to add one more, one more thing, too, because we touched on this in our discussions, which is that when you think about a company that's in the apparel industry, somebody walks around with a Louis Vuitton purse or some kind of branded item, you can identify that brand by the item. But in this case, the product is the pattern, but the fabric could be anything. So somebody sees you wearing a dress that is patterned off of one of Simplicity Patterns products, but they don't know who made that pattern. So in other words, the only way that your customers sort of do the advertising, I assume, is by word of mouth, because really, there's no way to know if that was a Simplicity Pattern that she followed or some other competitor's product. So just providing that value it has to be critical in the consumer experience. Yeah, yeah,
0: and and, and not having those costs associated with, with the business, I'm sure, enabled them to have higher than average margins and, and pass greater value on to their customers. And that is probably one of the best forms of advertising out there, word of mouth, in addition to just making a, a high-quality Product. I mean another another example of a high quality product was Hershey. For decades and decades after Hershey's founding, they did no advertising. They just let the quality of the product speak for itself. But getting back to simplicity, they also had a good proposi- a good value proposition for the textile and, and sewing machine manufacturers of the day. The paper patterns were a way to help sell the you know the capital equipment and the cons- other consumables that went along with uh, making your own clothing at home. And Shapiro basically co-opted the textile makers and used their salesmen to help sell simplicity patterns. And selling more simplicity patterns would mean people would be buying more Singer sewing machines or or bolts of cloth. So it was a kind of a symbiotic relationship. And another way to keep simplicity's costs low was they didn't have to hire as many salespeople to sell the products. So... Simplicity was founded in 1927, to to remind you guys, and just two years later, the great stock market crash came. Sales had been moderately brisk, but to Simplicity, this crash was kind of a stroke of luck because this meant that women who had never made a dress in their lives were now being forced to learn in order to economize and save money, And, and Simplicity was the best positioned company because of cheaper and easier to make patterns we're soon outselling all the other major and older competitors of the company. I think you can make an interesting case that Simplicity was one of the very first fast fashion companies. And basically they are just copying what was popular and trendy and they were quick to drop patterns that weren't selling and there's an old time magazine article that said simplicity junked or discontinued about 25% of their patterns every month which is an enormously high turnover Your rate of obsolescence or or you know just stuff that didn't work out so they had to be constantly copying whatever they thought was popular and and printing it out and shipping it out to the clothing and sewing retailers of the day.
2: That also has to speak to their, I would assume, capital light structure. In any other sort of business, if you're scrapping 25% of your product line every month, that usually involves a lot of retooling and, and serious capital expenditures. In this case, maybe you're just moving... The printing presses or the dyes a little bit on the cutters and boom, you've got a new product. And so that's one reason I assume that they were able to maintain what were probably pretty healthy margins in a tough economic Yeah,
0: definitely more capital light in some of the historical financials that I was able to gather bears that out. Depreciation and, and amortization as a percentage of uh, revenues, were probably in the four or five percent range, and the same with capital expenditures, Bare, barely mid single digits as a percentage of total revenues. And that's another another way that uh, they saved money, likely because they didn't have to hire expansion expensive designers and put them on their payrolls. They were just basically copying what other fashion houses were were making popular, what what the movie stars were wearing. It enabled their customers their end users to quickly and cheaply make what was very fashionable and perhaps unattainable in a store because either they were didn't have the money or they were in too too rural of an area that you know didn't offer the fashionable clothes of of the time and another another cool thing about the company is that the customer did all the work to create the end product
2: it, it sort of reminds me a little bit of uh something like Otis elevator where your inventory is pretty much negligible, and you just show up at the location and assemble the thing, and then you pretty much service it. You know, it's not a perfect analogy, but really, you're you're putting all of the material costs in the consumer's hands, and you're really just selling what is very loosely intellectual property. Yeah, yeah, and and at the very almost the least amount of of uh, tangible. Value, I guess, for lack of a better term, that, that you can comprise. I mean, it's basically tissue paper with with, with, a, with some print on it.
0: That's another interesting uh, example Or Simplicity had very light working capital requirements, and for all the patterns that they manufactured, they pretty much immediately shipped that out to the retailers, and it was the retailers were the ones that had the enormous working capital requirements. So Simplicity was just able to offload that onto the retailers. Another interesting quote from the founder Joseph Shapiro about fashion, he had a sign on his desk that read, fools invent fashions, wise men follow them. So he he was not a fan of trying to uh, spend or likely waste money on trying to create fashionable designs. He was uh, more than happy just to copy them and and take advantage, piggyback on other, other people's efforts in that regard another another interesting aspect of of the product that they were selling the company kind of tapped into several psychological aspects of their customers you know one was definitely the feeling of having saved money and another was also the you know the positive feeling of satisfaction that can come from just you know creating something for yourself and not just something new but something nice and that perhaps no one else has in your neighborhood or Small city or town.
2: Well, and just consider too that that uh, this is a time and place when it wasn't uncommon for consumers to reuse material from maybe the the curtains, like <laughs> *The Sound of Music*, or uh, the the uh, bags from the from the flower purchase, potato sacks. Who knows what? And so you'd have all of these sort of disparate patterns that you might find around the house, but then you're sorry, materials, but then you've got the pattern that can help you fashion that into whatever garment you want. Yep, yep. So it's a s- sort of a unique structure in the sense that the end product is whatever the actual seamstress or whoever's doing the sewing wants it to be. Yeah. And that, that's really what I like
1: so much about this, this company's model is when you think about it, the cost of the pattern is negligible compared to the total cost of producing a really high quality end product right the end product that you produce not only do you you get to take pleasure in, you know creating it yourself but it's far far cheaper and probably higher quality than what was store-bought at the time but when you compare the cost of the pattern to things like the bolt of cloth your sewing machine especially things like zippers and buttons and snaps the pattern is a very small, perhaps like a mid-single-digit percentage of that total cost. And so with that in mind, this this company undoubtedly had quite a bit of pricing power because if it's a single-digit percentage of the total cost, if you increase what you're charging just a, a small bit, for you as the company, it's rather tremendous. But in terms of total costs for the consumer, it, it's probably not going to influence their decision on, you know, whether they're creating the dress themselves or they're going to the store.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's an investment theme that I I love to see in any company that I'm looking at. Having a small portion of the total cost enables pricing power, just like Devin said. I mean, what are other more modern examples? I mean, Transdime might be one if you're in the aerospace parts market uh, you know, negligible, you know, even, even doubling a price on a, on a very low cost mm-hmm. part can meaningfully.
2: <laughs> right. And it can be any number of different things from, I know West Pharmaceuticals is a classic example in growth circles because of making those little rubber stoppers, for example, for injectable medications. I mean, it's, uh, compared to the medication itself, it's a tiny cost, but you're not going to take a chance on that little part messing up a very expensive end product. And I assume that's the same thing with Simplicity Pattern that if these patterns have worked for you in the past, you're not going to change that aspect of it because you know that's what fits you. You've had success with that in the past and it's just so small of a percentage of your overall cost that it's just almost like a repeat purchase each time you need new clothes.
1: Yeah. there's a ton, ton of, uh, you know, modern examples and like two that came, that came to my mind are one, something like a FICO score or software for originating a mortgage, right? Those are both very small expenses in terms of the grand scheme of the transaction, but you be- better make sure you, you, uh, you know, you have those in the equation. Otherwise, you could be falling onto some troubles.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, interestingly, I mean, people that were sewing at home, they did have some brand loyalty to Simplicity and the three or four other competitors that existed. But going back to the Great Depression, Simplicity made it through pretty easily as more and more women were forced to economize and Simplicity was helped further by the fact that their largest and oldest competitor, Butterick, they had to declare bankruptcy in 1935 and that undoubtedly enabled Simplicity to gain a bunch of market share during that time. So just 10 years after its founding in 1927, Simplicity had its IPO in the first half of 1937. The company offered 150,000 shares to the public at a price of $8 a share. So this valued the company at about 4 million and uh, shares were first listed on the New York Curb Exchange and also the Detroit Stock Exchange. I could not get full year figures for what their revenues and net profits were in 1937, but you know, if you annualized the the six month figures that I found, uh, simplicity would have earned roughly 2 million in revenues and about 200,000 in net profit, so you know, net margin of 10% already. So Simplicity continued to grow every year, and they made it through the Great Depression. And now we're at World War II. Annual revenues had reached about two and a half million, and had grown. Da- uh, growth had slowed down to the low single digits, but they had firmly claimed about fifty percent of the total market for paper patterns. And this was a industry that was selling about fifty to sixty million patterns annually. So, with the U.S. entering the you know, the Second World War growth reaccelerated again because this was another kind of forced period of, of economizing and rationing and, and limiting materials for the war effort
2: and you also had more women entering the workforce so they needed more things to wear to to work yeah work, and so work on.
0: clothes yeah. So this was another helpful period for Simplicity and the other pattern makers, and it just became even, even more popular and even more common for people to make their own clothing. And Simplicity's growth accelerated again. Revenues went from about $2.5 million in 1941 to nearly $7 million by the end of 1946. That's an annualized growth rate of 21% over five years. At this point, over 80% of the women in the US were able, capable of sewing at home and they bought a total of about 120 million patterns in 1946, about double the pre-war total and sales of the fabrics and bolts of cloth tripled from 1939 to 1946, going from about 76 million to 229 million. Now, with 50% of the market share, simplicity dominated mostly the low end of the powder market, but there were three other competitors that we can go over right now. First, I've already mentioned is Butterick. They were founded in the 1860s by Ebenezer Butterick, who was one of the first inventors of graded paper dress patterns. And, And graded just means that there are several different size options on the same sheet of paper. The next one is Vogue Patterns. Owned by Condé Nast, and that dates back to 1905. And, and Vogue used patterns as a way to sell more Vogue magazines. And readers of Vogue would purchase a pattern by clipping a coupon and mailing it in, along with fifty cents or however much it cost at that time. And the last big competitor is McCall. And this was this company was founded in 1870 as a fashion magazine by James McCall, who was a, a Scottish tailor. And he used the magazine to help sell his own line of sewing patterns. Another famous publication you might more readily recognize by McCall is Red Book. And another interesting fact about McCall is that Barbara Bush's father, Marvin Pierce, was the president of McCall from December 18, 1945 to 1958. And as I mentioned before, McCall, this one is for my mom, but Marvin Pierce was a 1916 graduate of uh, Miami University of Oxford, Ohio, where my mom went to college. Wow. Uh, Much much later. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But in in terms of the demographics these companies went after, Connie Nass clearly catered to the high end with their Vogue patterns, and McCall was kind of in the middle, medium end, and Simplicity, and uh, Butterick took care of the rest.
2: I think it's just uh, worth repeating there, Doug, too, that in those cases – for Vogue, McCall and Butterick, those were actually companies trying to influence fashion versus just sort of copycatting it like simplicity was. So it's a a, a subtle but very important difference.
0: Yeah, I think I think it's a it's a good distinction and an interesting difference. And also interesting, some of these companies began in the the publication in periodicals business and added patterns later. And some of them started with patterns, and then later published their own periodicals to help promote and advertise patterns. So simplicity continues to grow after World War II, and eventually the founder Joseph Shapiro retires in in 1949, and his son James takes over as the head of the company. And by the Early 1950s, over 38 million women in the US could sew. And in 1953, women bought enough patterns to produce a 12,000 mile line of garments laid end to end. And the thread used to sew those garments could sew a gossamer line to the moon and back more than 2,000 times. Wow. And an- another important factor in the growth of simplicity and the industry were a bunch of advances in, in technology in addition to sociological changes that were happening in, in the forties and fifties. So the, the technology advances were mainly in the sewing machines. They, they vastly improved over the decades. And also the smaller ticket items became easier to use. And there were things like foolproof buttonhole makers and repair kits also made the, the home sewing process much easier and less daunting
2: and you had a a pretty substantial rise in discretionary income as the economy sort of went into growth mode yeah, in the 50s. yeah.
0: and there and there is there's still even after the war there're still shortages of lots of different materials and goods with you know with the influx of the men coming back overseas and also in inflation picked up a lot after the war and that also kind of maintained the value proposition of of the home sewing, it was still vastly cheaper to make your own clothes as opposed to purchasing them from a store. But some of the the new features a sewing machine were capable of were things like being able to embroider, darn, quilt, overcast, link two edges without overlapping. You know all these things I know how to do, of course. Um, <laughs> sew, sew on buttons, make buttonholes, and. According to the article, it could virtually do anything except dry cleaning. So advances in technology just made it easier to sew and just kept up the growth profile of all the industry players.
2: It kind of reminds me of our vending machine episode where the ability to read cash for vending machines became this sort of uh, mechanism for reevaluating a pretty boring and uh, placid industry. And so now with... The advent of this new machinery, which just about probably the average homeowner could afford and put in the house in the household, now you've got this whole new growth trajectory for this pattern company.
0: Yeah, it's definitely fuel for growth. Well, because we mentioned Singer sewing machine, this might be a good point to kind of compare the the financial characteristics of simplicity, the pattern maker versus Singer sewing machine, the provider of the heaviest investment a home sewer has to make, which is the sewing machine. So I know you guys already know, you've looked at the financials, but if you had to guess without knowing the financials, which company do you think would seem more attractive to you, the paper pattern maker or the sewing machine company?
2: Devin, I'll let you go first. (laughs) I mean, I I have
1: to go with simplicity. I mean, there's Two reasons that pop in my head is is one with with something like Singer. You're talking about all of these improvements to the technology of the sewing machine itself. Well, you got to spend quite a bit of money on R&D to make all that happen. And then you want to make a high quality machine. In theory, you sell that once to somebody and then that thing lasts a very long time. Whereas if you're betting on this kind of secular growth trend of sewing at home, creating clothing at home, why not be this company simplicity that's I consider to be kind of the ultimate piggybacker, right? They're not spending anything on R&D. They're copying all the patterns. They're not spending anything on marketing because they're having the sewing machine companies and the textile companies kind of do their marketing for them in a way. And then as you want to keep up with fashion, as you want to keep creating new clothing as you wear wear through them, you got to just keep buying more and more patterns over time. So super capital light product that is continually bought time and time again by the consumer. That, that immediately appeals to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a, kind of a, a renewable recurring revenue kind of business, right? I mean, in theory, you could use the same pattern to make multiple versions of the same dress, but... Fashion changes, people's tastes change, people have kids, they need patterns to make clothing for their kids. You know, kids don't say the same size their entire life. They, most of them <laughs> tend to keep growing and growing until high school. So it's, it's surprising to me that the sewing machine companies never ac- try to acquire these paper dress pattern companies to become more vertically integrated and to have that razor, razor blade business model under one roof.
2: The, the only thing I would add to that discussion, though, and, and I've thought about it a little bit, which is the story of Simplicity Patterns founding shows that there's virtually no barriers to entry in that particular market. And so I'm going to go the opposite and say with, with Stinger, <laughs> yes, I mean, theoretically, these infrequent purchases Uh, those things are are not necessarily optimal in a way it might resemble something like a john Deere or a caterpillar but they do have a a certain staying power in the minds of consumers i would have to assume that that most of the major sewing machine players have have been around for a while and they're the, the the technological I don't know, a curve, I guess, is, is a quite a bit different. So the adaptations within that industry occur over yeah. much longer periods of time. And I think that's true in a lot of, a lot of industries that probably their revenue cycles tend to have sub- suboptimal highs and lows and tied to the economy and the consumer household balance sheet and so on. But in a way, it's, it seems like it's a lot harder to establish yourself in that industry versus the pattern industry.
0: It's a good counterpoint, Lawrence, because again, simplicity itself is the example of going from zero market share to 50% market share in in two decades. It it shows that the dynamics are are a little more fragile and open to competition. This is kind of a foreshadowing (laughs) a little bit. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I mean, I, I think Lawrence made a great point, but at the same time, while
1: the barriers to entry appear low, You think about simplicity undercutting its competition pretty dramatically in terms of price. But when you look at their model, due to the low capital intensity, like their margins were still terribly impressive despite undercutting competition to such a degree. And if you think about it from that point, who can then enter the market as somebody new? How much more can you undercut simplicity who's now operating at scale that has all these relationships already, you know, Getting their patterns out into the world that has brand loyalty and recognition it can only drive the price down so much further to zero before you have a very non-viable model,
0: right? So let's do the comparison of the, of the financials at, the, at this snapshot in time, and the, the period is nineteen fifty-four to nineteen sixty-three. Singer's operating margins were uh, averaged about eleven percent as they grew from four hundred. 25 million in sales to 790 million in sales in that time period. In the same time period, Simplicity, they started with operating margins of 15% in 1954 on revenues of just barely 14 million. And then over the next nine years, Simplicity doubled their revenues to 27 million and operating margins just continued to grow and grow into 24.4%. So just in that Snapshot of time, Simplicity, I think, clearly has the better business model at that point in time, at least financially speaking. Qualitatively, we'll we'll soon see how the company performed. Uh, There's an interesting 1964 New York Times article that reported that $1 billion was spent on supplies for home sewing at that point in time, and Simplicity was continuing to sell about half of the total... 100 million patterns sold every year. And there, there were a few other things that were interesting to me. One was not terribly surprising, but consumers had brand preferences for the different you know manufacturers of paper patterns. Some women interviewed in this article tended to favor you know, one pattern company over another saying they could feel a difference. I'm sure there were some slight differences in terms of the way the patterns were printed or instructions were easier to follow. But the article also confirms again, yet again, still in 1964, that there were substantial savings from home sewing with remnant fabrics or kind of fabrics that were at the end of the bolt of cloth and that were often put on sale to get rid of. It was possible to make a wool garment for 6 to $7 total, which would normally retail for 40 to $50 at that point in time. This is yet another interesting aspect of of simplicity, which which remind me a lot about Ross stores and TJ Maxx, these sales of remnant fabrics at big discounts. There are a lot of consumers that just couldn't resist finding and getting that huge deal. And another woman was quoted in this article as saying she can't resist remnants. Quote, all those marvelous markdown pieces of material, I buy them whether I need them or not and put them away. And then I just have to get a pattern and do something about them, end quote. So that immediately reminded me of TJ Maxx and their kind of treasure hunt format and having stuff on deep discounts and attracting customers and and loyalty that way.
2: And you have to wonder to to what extent the recent uh, memories of uh, war and rationing and so on had on their mindset as far as like, well, I'm going to buy the stuff when I can because you never know when you're going to need it and just stash it away.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm sure. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure all of our parents have some issues with being unable to resist a deal, even if they're getting more than they'll be able to use it within a period of time, yeah. so, especially, especially when it comes to food.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm <laughs> guilty of that. And I get made fun of buying bulk all the time, but I can't pass up a good deal. And uh, yeah, I think back to I'm, I'm sure we all have parents or grandparents where, you know, you, you have your dad or granddad with a workshop where every tin can is full of every kind of bolt and nail and nothing gets thrown out because you never know when you might need that spare, yeah. that spare part.
0: Yeah, that feeling had to have been much greater back then. And in, in even after so many generations, us three guys are still feeling the, the echoes of that period of time. So moving on, Simplicity continues to do really well. Its, operation, uh, its operating margins are in the high 20s and nearly hit 30% in 1971. And revenues were going double digits or even as high as 30% a year and just kept doing well and well and growing and growing. And it's, it's this point in time when they get an acquisition offer by an interesting company.
2: <laughs> yeah. A fellow I'm, Nifty Fifty member, right?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I forgot. Bristol, yeah, <laughs> Bristol Myers was in the fifty Nifty Fifty as well. Yeah, it, so that happened in 1970, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. It's a cra- crazy turn at the beginning of 1970. Bristol Myers offers to buy Simplicity at a transaction value of 450 million dollars. And for context, in 1969, Simplicity earned nine million on revenues of 73 million. So Bristol was willing to pay 51 times trailing earnings for this name, and obviously they thought the growth trend would continue. For the you know previous three years, Simplicity was compounding sales at 23%, which is pretty remarkable. And mind you, if you if you go back further, you know this is 69, uh, 73 million in sales. If, if you go back just to 1946. So sales were just right around 7 million. So I mean, this thing was just growing and growing and growing. But the crazy part is, is that simplicity turned the deal down. (laughs) Was that crazy? I mean, 51 times PE trailing. On the other hand, everything looked like it was gonna keep growing and growing and growing. Was Bristol Myers actually SANE offering that price? To find out, you'll have to join us for part two, so stay tuned. If you enjoyed this episode, head over to preferredsharespodcast.com. On the site, there's a full list of resources and additional data for you to dig into. And on the site, you can subscribe to the podcast directly, so all future episodes land directly in your inbox. If you want to support preferred shares, the single most helpful thing you can do is to spread the word. Share preferred shares with others who love business history as much as you and we do. As always, thanks for listening.